Hello, and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. I'm here to keep you up to date with all the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Tim Farmer. Uh, I'm the clinical director at Comentis, and I'm honoured to be your host today. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the recent care reforms. It seems quite pertinent that we've had the the recent release of the ADAS report looking at the state of care today and its provision. And we're going to take some time today to just dig a, a little bit deeper into that. Now, I'm delighted to welcome three very, very esteemed colleagues. Um, we've got Alison Hesketh. Uh, Alison is the Senior Life Specialist and she's founder of TimeFinders. Time Finders is a company that, that looks to bridge the gap between the legal and financial professions and, and the care sector. Also, honoured to have Shaliza Hashem with us. She's the director at CHD Living, which is an award-winning and family-owned and operated group of care services. And finally, uh, we're joined by Stuart Stretton-Hill, who is one of the, the, the senior associates at Erwin Mitchell. And he specialises in helping elderly and vulnerable clients with their legal issues that relate to mental capacity, asset protection, care-free planning, and 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 a whole host more. So, as I as I mentioned earlier, we're we're looking at uh, all things surrounding the care reform, and you know we've had the the recent ADAS report that's come out, and I have to say I find some of the figures in that absolutely frightening. So. It's telling us that the number of adults on the waiting list for social care has risen to more than 500,000. And that's almost double what it was a year ago. I have to ask, Alison, what are your thoughts? I mean, the the report as a whole, take any one bit of it and and start us off from there. That's... 500,000 people, over 500,000 people who aren't getting the care they need to live, which means they're getting sicker quicker. It means they're going into hospital when they don't need to go into hospital. So they're adding to the NHS burden for ambulance care, for A&E, for being um, admitted to hospital, for then not being able to get out of hospital because there's nobody to care for them when they come out. So we can't look at social care in isolation. It has a dramatic impact on the NHS. Um, And when you look at the recruitment crisis that's in, that underpins that figure, the government's social care reform bill does not go anywhere near addressing that recruitment crisis. Thank goodness that the government did a U-turn and suddenly declared that care workers were indeed skilled people and therefore care companies could recruit from abroad. But there are two issues with that. One, it's a very short-term solution. Secondly, it takes longer to bring carers in from abroad. There are the cultural differences and the language differences and and the additional training that is sometimes necessary before they are ready to start working in the care sector. Not to mention the fact that we're actually taking people from countries that probably need carers themselves. That's that's another sort of moral issue that we have to consider. But it isn't a long-term solution. The only way that we can solve the, the, the care recruitment crisis is to increase the status of carers. And that's not just about money, although money is a very important part. 
I think the BBC report said that cleaners get paid significantly more than carers do. That's not to denigrate cleaners, but it just shows how society looks at um, at the people who provide such amazing and unbelievably essential services. You're absolutely right. And you've, you've drawn out a, a number of, of really key points. You know, that what one is that we, we can't look at this as a silo, that it's, you know, that, that everything is is connected. Um, and maybe we can come back to that. I, I would really like to pick up on your on your point about about recruitment and, and the, you know, the, the impact that, that that is having on care and, and the, the, the current provision. Chaliza, we, we were chatting kind of pre pre kind of podcast and, and you were telling us about the rising costs that, that you guys are facing as, as, as a provider? Yeah, I mean, um, staff costs alone have risen by 40% over the last few years, which is really astonishing. With that, we've seen almost a 40% uplift in insurance costs um, over the last two years. Uh, food costs have increased by 20%. And then uh, just general um, energy costs, medical equipment care consumables increase as well above the current uh, CPI rate so it's a real challenge for operators because you know we do what we do because we want to provide a good service to our local community provide them with good accommodation good care and a good quality of life and in order to do that we need to spend money and we want to spend more money on our workforce because without a workforce, we don't have a business. We can't care for our residents. And we're fighting and fighting and fighting against the local authorities to pay fairly to the operator so that we can pay our staff. And it's just not happening. I think, you know, we've had a challenge We've been in business now for almost 40 years and the challenge of getting people to join the sector has been the biggest problem throughout that entire time. And it's even greater now. And I think we have to remember that our colleagues are just completely exhausted. And, you know, we've been through what I guess you could describe as a huge trauma and people are suffering from post-traumatic stress. We've lost staff as a result of mandatory vaccines and social care, which, of course, the government did a U-turn on with the NHS, which, again, just goes to show how disjointed the health care agenda is for this country. The workforce strategy, strategy requires a clear roadmap on how this will be de delivered and how to recruit and retain staff. And I mean... In the social care reform, there's a proposed plan that includes a £500 million pledge for social care workforce training. But what is the point if we can't get the staff in the first place? You know, the sector is not an attractive sector to be in. We've been absolutely run through awful, awful media during the course of the pandemic, when in fact, Care services were probably one of the safest places to be. And we went over, above and beyond to support our NHS, to bring people into the care homes, to unblock hospital beds. And now we have 500,000 people who are still not getting the care that they require. Uh, we've got local authorities blocking beds left, right and centre. But we don't have capacity. You know, we've, we've gone from occupancy levels that were crippling to the business 
to finding ourselves back at high levels of occupancy, but a massive national shortage of beds. And then when you look at the beds across the sector, you know, when we look at what is considered a market standard bed, that is only an, a, a WC en suite. It's not even a personal wet room or shower room. So if you're looking at what is market standard, I'm sorry, my my parents or my grandparents would be used to having their own shower room, wet room, bathroom. We're trying to provide care that is practical and familiar. And so without massive investment in the sector, we are in big, big trouble. You mentioned there about beds being blocked. For those yeah. who, who aren't used to the social care sector, what does that mean? Sure. So historically, one would have a contract with a local authority and that would tend to be a spot purchasing contract. So they would agree a rate for the local area that they would pay for a bed, which was funded by the local authority for individuals who had been means tested and were eligible for social care funding. What has happened now is because we are in such dire straits, essentially, they are coming to operators and saying, I want to block 50 or 60 or 100 beds across your group, uh, blocking them at higher rates than we've ever seen before. They're being paid for whether they're occupied or not. Um, a lot of this is coming out of what we call the discharge to assess programme, which means the actual future pathway of care has not been accounted for. So what is happening is people are being discharged out of hospital into a care setting with funding, but that funding dries up after about four weeks of care. Families aren't being well informed of this. And then what happens? And we've got to bear in mind here that the pledge for the social care reform and levelling up in social care doesn't actually come into effect until October 2023. So we've still got more than a year of very antiquated, archaic, unfair system whereby people are completely uninformed about how to access care um, and finding themselves in care homes when all of a sudden they're being told, I'm sorry, we're not going to pay for it anymore and having to find the money to then continue to pay for this care. So, so Shaliza, I mean, you're not painting a pretty picture of, of how huh. things are. We, you know, what we're hearing is I'm sorry, is that it's not a good one. <laughs> no, no, but, you know, but it, it's, it's important that we get a realistic view of this, you know, that, that we, are, we are faced with a, with a sector where beds are being blocked off and perhaps not used, but being paid yeah. for anyway. On top of that, we have a shortage of staff. We have a poor recruitment. We have a shortage of provision. And then we have a shortage of, of kind of payment from the government. Now, yeah. Stuart, I'm going to I'm going to come to you because, you know, th there's all this talk about a cap of 86,000. But what Shaliza seems to be saying is that actually the, the money's not there. And that if you want care for your parents, which may not even include their own wash area, then where's that money going to come from? Are we going to have to be digging into our own pockets above and beyond that, that 86,000? There's a very simple answer to that. Yes, it's as simple as that. And, and I mean, Shalise, you said the, the current system's unfair. There's this cliff edge at, at £23,000, after which everyone has to pay for their own care. And that's a, that's a tiny amount when you take into account people's savings, value of their house and so forth. 
And yeah, these new proposals, okay, they, they shift those limits a bit up to £100,000. Then you start paying for your care. But when you look at it, the devil really is in the detail. This promise, no one will pay more than £86,000 for their care. That's the headline rate. No, people will pay more than £86,000 for their care because what does that £86,000 represent? How is it calculated? And what the proposal says, it is the cost of your care. Not the hotel element, as people call it, not the bed and board and not all those very valuable services that Shaliza's team provide on top of the, 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 the care. All those things are not counting towards that £86,000 cap. And on top of that, the rate which goes towards that £86,000 cap is actually the rate the local authority would pay, not necessarily what you are paying privately. So you may be paying, let's say, £4,000 a month, but actually only... £1,500, £1,800 of that is counting towards that care cap. So in reality, you're going to end up paying substantially more, three, four, five times as much. And the message I've been trying to get out to my clients uh, at the moment, I've always said, look, you've got to plan your finances properly for the future. You've got to be prepared. Um, you don't want to have to rely on local authority care. And that message hasn't changed. You've still got to plan. You've still got to to reserve capital for the future. And that is such a challenge. We all know about the rising costs, current commercial crisis. Costs are going up everywhere. It's even harder for people to save. So they won't have that money in the long term to pay for the care that's going to cost even more. It is an absolutely spiralling situation. It has been spiralling for decades, really. And yes, Tim, you're right. It is not a good picture. It, it all does boil down to money. We, Alison, you said, you know, care is not being paid as much as cleaners. I mean, this is frightening. I've always described our care services as the fourth emergency service, and yet they're not paid on the par. Carers are absolutely denigrated in the media, which I think is hugely unfair. I think this, the message that needs to come across to people at the moment is that, yes, the reforms are going the right direction. No one likes paying more tax, but at least there's going to be some money put into the system. So hopefully that will, will help improve care, improve the recruitment of carers. This idea of £500 million being put aside to support carers' wellbeing, I think, is an excellent proposal. How is it going to work out in practice? But more needs to be done, as both Alice and Angelisa have said, more needs to be done to attract well-qualified carers into the industry, paying more will obviously help there. But again, where's it going to come from? It's not going to come all from the government's budget. It's going to come from our own pockets. So Stuart, that's that's quite sobering, that that, that whole notion that it feels like there's still worse to come, you know, that, that we are somehow going to have to find additional money from who knows where just to, to give ourselves or you know our parents the, the level of care that that you would consider just to be a base level Alison I I want to come to you we've heard for years this this whole notion of the postcode lottery when it comes to care and I'm just wondering is there anything in the the, the government's proposals or, or anything on the horizon that, that you feel is, is going to change that or does it feel like we're going to become 
even more of a of a lottery with all of the the accumulation of things that Shaliza's and has told us and Stuart's told us. I think that's the only thing that I can say to that. I I think it will get more uneven because there is this focus on um, the local health authorities and the local care providers within a particular region deciding on what's needed. Now, at one level, you think that's absolutely great. That's going to be responding to local needs. But actually, in reality, what it means is that somebody in one area is going to be supported where somebody else isn't. You know, we've already got the four bands of care eligibility. And Shaliza would probably be able to go into more detail about that. What activities of daily living you can't do and the level to which you can't do them is determined on a local basis. And so, as I say, it will it will become more uneven. And one of the things that really worries me is that the, the NHS, although there are lots and lots of different departments and different levels of the NHS, they are all under the banner of the NHS. When you're talking about care providers, you're talking about a huge range of organisations from charitable organisations, community interest companies, family-owned businesses, owner-run small care homes, small domiciliary care agencies covering a small area, national ones with franchises, huge great big businesses with international investment. And there isn't a single voice for the care sector to stand up against the single voice of the NHS. So in a way, the the, the care sector is divided and, and forgive me, I'm, I'm going to say leaderless because there isn't that that single voice. And there's no voice at all for carers. Shaliza was talking about the PTSD that, that people are suffering from multiple, multiple bereavements, particularly in, in care homes at a level that they've never seen before. And that's going to have a, a you know an impact. That hasn't been taken in, into account. And like people in the NHS, when they're overworked and under, and, and under stress, that means that more people are going to be leaving the sector. I do firmly believe that there needs to be a single voice for carers, both those privately employed by these companies, charities, whatever, and also individual carers, self-employed private carers for whom there is no regulation. I know everybody throws their hands up and says, oh my goodness, not more regulation. But actually when it comes to care, when it comes to the people who are coming into your own home and working with you as a very vulnerable person, you, you need that regulation. I would I would love to see an organisation akin to the Nursing and Midwifery Council that is responsible for professional standards in the industry, is responsible for national training. Because at the moment, there, is, there should be this national training care training certificate that is transferable between care organisations. In reality, it's not. And so that's another reason what, which makes it difficult from carers to move from one care organisation to another. We need individual carer regulation because however wonderful 99.9% .9 of the care team are, there are one or two who are not. And we know from personal experience that carers who have failed dismally have been let go by one organisation simply to go to another one. Because under the CQC rules, it's a bad mark 
against a care organisation to have a bad carer. So th there is so much fundamental change that needs to be made. Uh, I would I would really like some creative, intelligent people to come together to say it doesn't matter what we've got now. What do we want to have, and how can we make that happen? And I just feel that the reform bill is just tinkering at the edges. Wow, thank you, Alison. I, I look forward to seeing you head up this kind of and, and become the, the the champion of the care group. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think you're right. I think why don't we try and pull together, the, you know, a group? You know, I'm sure we we've all got contacts and we've all got levels of expertise. We could try to start to get the ball rolling, pull that together. I think that, I think that's a that's a brilliant suggestion. Okay, Alison, thank thank you thank you so much uh, for for that. Um, I'd like to bring uh, Shaliza in. Shaliza, we we've heard Stuart talk about the the capa and the cost. We we've heard Alison talk around the the postcode lottery from a provider's point of view. How does that kind of all all mesh together? Yeah, I think Stuart's point about the fact that the contribution that is paid by the local authority is only for the care element, right? So these additional daily living costs are really important. And what people often don't realise is actually the cost of having a full-time live-in carer in your home is actually the same as moving into a residential or nursing home. Granted, we have the FNCC, which is the Funded Nursing Care Contribution, if you require nursing care. And it's brilliant news that I'm only a month late for once. We've just had the announcement of the increase. So that's gone up to around £200 a week from £186 a week, which is great. But these daily living costs that we talk about, this is food, this is activity, this is your bedroom being well maintained, this is your outings, this is everything that you need to live. And you can imagine that the cost of that to the provider in a care setting will be far higher than the cost of that to somebody still living in their own home, right? So there's a big problem here because the living costs are not the same. It's just an impossible blanket decision that doesn't make any sense. Um, and like Stuart was saying, there is an issue here with your your board, your bedroom, right? You might be given your funding, but what does that give you? Does that give you a smaller bedroom without any facilities, without a view, you know, you know, in, in a dark corner of the property? And only those who have, or those with families who have, will be able to top up that cost to give better accommodation. There, you know, accommodation is very key to somebody's well-being and how they how they age well, if you like. So particularly end-of-life care, where looking outside, seeing the sky is so important. Coming back down to sort of the, the postcode lottery, this this kind of really upsets me a little bit because then research conducted in 2021 found that 80,000 care home residents could be receiving social care in their own homes, but they're missing out just because of where they live. And that is astonishing, right? How can that be possible in a place where we say that we are fair and providing social care for all, right? And I think that um, 
what's very interesting in terms of if you look at individual circumstances, and I'm going to take a take an example that Jonathan Ashworth, uh, the Shadow Health Secretary, actually made, where he labelled the new plan, the social reform, a care con rather than a care plan. And he said that if you live in a £1 million house, perhaps in the home counties, 90% of your assets will be protected if you need social care. But if you live in an £80,000 terrace house, you know, in, in Hartlepool or Mansfield or Wigan, for example, you will lose nearly everything. And that is not fair. That is not levelling up. That's daylight robbery. Sorry, I'm still being doom and gloom, right? But with that, we then get to the point that in order to find this money, it's been a national insurance tax increase. So what's happening is those people who are going to need the funding the most are going to be penalised the most. And it should have been an income income tax increase, which would have been far, far fairer. You know, people are still going to need to sell their homes ultimately. But I do hope, and I, I really genuinely do hope that this risk will be reduced because the increase to 86,000 from the 23,000 will make a difference. It's just not enough. Stuart, any, any, any thoughts or anything to add? Sure. No, I, I absolutely echo the, the unfairness in, in the um, uh, level of finances. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Someone who is wealthy is going to uh, retain much more of their assets than, than someone who, who's less well off. The system does need looking at. An income tax uh, would have been better, but there's all sorts of other things that could could have been and could still be done. The cost of care is a big drain on the government's purse. It's a big drain on individuals personally. The Alzheimer's Society did a, a study a few years ago saying that uh, essentially the cost of care provided for free by family and loved ones is something like £13.9 billion a year, which is a staggering, staggering amount. Um, and people aren't being reimbursed for that. So what about rather than just hiking national insurance across the board? Yes, taxing those with more to generate a fund, but also providing incentives to save for your care in the future. We get tax relief on pension funds. We, we could do something similar for care, encourage people to think long term. If they build up a care pot that's not needed, it could be passed, say, inheritance tax free down to the next generation as a nice saving pot to help with their school fees, to help with the university, to help them buy a house. Let's face it, those costs are spiralling as well. Looking at it from another avenue as well, we mentioned this idea of, of care at home. And I, I absolutely agree. I think it's so important that people are able to live at home for as long as possible. I haven't yet had a client when they've made their health and welfare power of attorney with me. I haven't yet had a client say, yes, I'd love to go into a care home, please. Quite the opposite. They all are saying, look, please don't put me in a care home unless I cannot manage at home. So everyone wants their home. But what about the home they're living in? If they built their wealth up over the years, they you know they bought the house for the children and the children grown up there, the children moved out, and they're now living in a you know four bedroom house that's too big for them. It's got flights of stairs that they 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 can't manage anymore. But the problem is they want to sell and downsize. They're going to be paying stamp duty on that new property, aren't they? So what about making it easier for people to uh, in later life who want to downsize to a smaller, more suitable accommodation? give them some tax breaks. That frees up properties at the higher end of the market. It filters on down. Those young children who um, have left home are able to purchase 
a property and get on the ladder a lot a lot more easily. So it's a really this whole financial impact is much more massive than just looking at how do we pay the carers? Where does the funding come from? Is it NHS? Is it local authority? There are so many other ways this could be addressed. I think the message I'd sort of like to get out to, to people is absolutely plan ahead. Do your financial planning. Think about where you want to be, what care you want to have in the future. Ensure your family are able to provide that. Ensure your family know what your wishes are. Put a power of attorney in place so people can take decisions for you if you can't do it yourself. But I think the positive spin out of all this, it has been very doom and gloom, and I apologise for that, but it, it's hard to find a silver lining with these storm clouds. But I think there is one in the fact that the government seems to be taking this seriously now. We had the proposals 2010 put into force 2014. Oh, no, maybe not. We'll kick it down the road a couple of years or kick it down the road a few more years. At least it looks like something is now happening and funding is being made available. But I think one of the more um, important aspects is the public's attention is now being focused on this. It's a talking point. And with more voices talking about it, there's more opportunity for change. Thank you, Stuart. Glad you could try and put out some silver lining there because it does all feel a bit, a bit, a bit doom and gloom. I think it is important that we remember the government is putting money into this, even though it it feels like a drop in the ocean and it doesn't feel like it's the the complete solution. But you're right. You know, we are talking about it. We are looking at it. Alison and, and Shalise, I'm going to come to you guys in turn. Just if there's one bit of hope or one bit of advice that you, you would really like people to take away from this podcast, what would it be? Alison, I'll, I'll come to you first. Uh, Mine's going to be a very personal one because I think change starts with us. Stuart's absolutely right. We are talking about it more and and that can only be a good thing. But I think that we need to positively reinforce the idea that great care should be valued and, and encouraged. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, how can I do that? You can do it by treating your carer, whether you're in a residential home or whether you're, you know, um, being looked after in your own home, treating your carer with respect and appreciating what they do. You might not be able to do anything more than that, but that in itself will be great. It breaks my heart when I see people being rude to their carer and being disrespectful they have no idea what this carer is going through and this carer is performing an amazing job so it's a very personal thing because you know Stuart can can look for the legal and the financial expertise and and Shaliza provides the care directly I can help people live in the right place at the right time which will keep them healthier and make them more able to manage as they get older and that is a, a, a the, the best way to, to to solve the care crisis is not to need care but on an individual basis to be kind and to be respectful and to be appreciative thank you Alison. i think that that's so important to, to to remember that that you know the the people that are coming into your home that are doing this are human beings and they will have their own you know, may have their own stresses, their own life problems. And actually, you know, we should be treating them with, with respect and dignity that they deserve. Chaliza, over to you, a last, a last kind of soundbite or, or thing to take away. I think it's fair to say we all have concerns about the future. 
I think this is a step in the right direction for social care. I feel like we need to go further um, to recognize social care for the amazing sector that it is. And I think that what we have to remember is within our sector, we have to remember how dynamic a group of people we have inside of it. And they are resilient and they are in the jobs that they are in because they care and they need to be celebrated and recognized. And, you know, we get thrown hoops and we always find a way to get through them. And it's just unfortunate that there are so many hoops always thrown in the way of social care. But, you know, one voice work together and and we will come out stronger. We we always do. Excellent. Thank you, Shaliza. Thank you so much. Look, Alison, Shalita, Stuart, it's been great chatting with you guys and, and your insights and, and your knowledge is is second to none. Um, it's great that we've got, you know, such experts on hand to, you know, to, to kind of help navigate people through this. And and anybody listening to this, absolutely, if anything that Alison said or Shalita or Stuart has said has kind of piqued something with you, then 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 get in touch with us and and we can we can pass you on to the you know everybody's here to help so you know we could talk for hours about this but unfortunately time you know gets catches up with us all so i would like to thank you know my, my three esteemed colleagues for, for joining us and that's it for today thanks for listening to the erwin mitchell podcast if you found it interesting then join us for our next episode stay safe